From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. How safe is our food? The numbers alone are enough to make you sick. Nearly 80 million Americans will fall ill this year, and some 5,000 will die from contaminated food. The statistics indicate that we've got work to do. We're not there yet, but it's getting safer and safer all the time. Top officials say we're making progress. Others say we could do a lot better if we bought food grown closer to home. What's going to make us less vulnerable to these sorts of outbreaks is depending more on smaller, more diversified farms in our area. Some fresh thinking on food safety. Also, what do you do with a giant pumpkin? Well, you could just squash it, or you could turn it into a boat. Carve out some time for those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young, sitting in for Steve Kerwood. Recent headlines about contaminated food might make you think twice about a trip through the produce aisle. Botulism and carrot juice paralyzed two people. E. coli and spinach killed three and sickened hundreds more. The safety of our food is in question. In this segment of the program, we'll explore the problem and possible solutions. We now know that cow manure in water was to blame for that tainted spinach. But back when people first started getting sick, some suspected an act of terrorism. The officials on alert for terror attacks don't just watch airports and skyscrapers. They also watch farms and food. A recent congressional hearing focused on what Georgia Representative John Barrow called agro-terrorism, an attack on the food supply. We've had evidence that agriculture and food are potential al-Qaeda targets since 2002. It's a growing concern. This year's FBI symposium on agro-terrorism attracted three times as many people as last year's. Dr. Peter Chalk was a featured speaker at that FBI symposium. He's a terrorism analyst at the RAND Corporation. Chalk says the U.S. food system is highly vulnerable, but he doubts that terrorism is the real threat. Well, the argument goes that uh, if you were going to attack U.S. agriculture, it would be primarily a form of economic aggression, uh, simply designed to cripple what is a a very lucrative uh, industrial sector. The primary motivating agenda of terrorism still remains to shock, uh, to kill en masse, uh, to kill with highly shocking attacks. That is necessary for publicity. It is necessary for mobilizing recruits, radicalizing existing supporters. It's also necessary to imbue a targeted society with the type of um, terror and fear that uh, extremists strive to attain. So it could really hurt us in an economic sense and and could bring about uh, deaths, but they wouldn't be high-profile, televised, really terrorizing kind of deaths. Therefore, a terrorist might not be that interested. Yes. uh, I mean, the impact would be significant, but it would be delayed and it would lack an immediate point of contact for the media to pick up on. So that's the first point. And merely sickening cows doesn't really satisfy the bloodlust, in my opinion, that terrorists strive to, uh, to achieve. So what is it that makes us vulnerable? What are, the, what are the weak points? If you look at the inherent nature of agriculture, it is large-scale and intensive. Typical dairy, at least 1,500 lactating cows. They are concentrated as uh, herds that live in close proximity towards one another, which means that diseases will quickly spread. And in many cases, 
the smaller or medium-scale food processing facilities often employ transient, unscreened workforces, and even basic security measures such as padlocking of warehouses may not be in place. You need to go beyond the vulnerabilities, though, if one is looking at a deliberately orchestrated attack, uh, to look at capabilities. Um, and it's certainly very easy to, to harm agriculture. Many disease agents are not um, infectious to humans, which means that a perpetrator or a, a terrorist could handle them without any fear of accidental infection. And then because the animal itself is the weapon, in the sense that the animal would distribute the disease, there is no problem of weaponization to overcome. It sounds like there are a lot of points of vulnerability. Do we have any evidence that uh, anyone has intentionally taken uh, advantage of this? In other words, have there ever been agro-terror attacks? I think I'm correct in saying since 1912, there have only been a dozen or so documented cases of the deliberate introduction of a disease agent against the food chain, of which only a handful would be termed terroristic. I mean, the best one in the U.S. context would be the introduction of salmonella by the Rajneeshi cult in Oregon in 1984, which was an attempt to influence local voter pattings. They spread uh, salmonella on, on salad bars, right? That's correct, yeah. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, no, there is no real evidence that this has uh, uh, been a major focus of terrorist activity, which goes back to my questioning this uh, supposed al-Qaeda interest. They are going for soft targets. They are going for strikes that can be carried out cheaply and which offer a high degree of success. And certainly attacking agriculture would meet those requirements. But for me, they do, it doesn't meet the requirement of shock value. How do we then put this threat into into context here? I mean, uh, is there is the real threat here Al Qaeda getting into the food supply or uh, cow manure accidentally getting into the food supply? I think the real threat is cow manure. The real threat lies with a naturally occurring outbreak. Um, that is what the uh, track record has shown across the world. There have been numerous outbreaks of diseases such as such as FMD that have been naturally occurring. And that's a foot and mouth disease, FMD? Yes, it is. I mean, uh, everywhere from Taiwan right through to uh, to the UK. Other, other potentially worrisome diseases would be Rift Valley fever or exotic Newcastle disease. And I think really when we're looking at protecting agriculture, I, I don't think that it helps to always place this in the context of terrorism. We need a, a, a homeland security should be viewed in a much more holistic terms, and it's not necessarily only about terrorism. It's about safeguarding critical infrastructure against all types of threats. And naturally occurring diseases vis-a-vis -vis agriculture, I think, are the greatest threat as opposed to a terrorist deliberately attacking that sector. Dr. Peter Chalk is a terrorism analyst at the RAND Corporation. Thanks for talking with us. Thank you very much for having me. Well, you don't have to go far to find a place ripe with food safety solutions. Every weekday, Nathan Siegel, owner of Tempo Restaurant, shops at local farmers markets in the Boston area, keeping a sharp eye out for heirloom tomatoes. He prefers them to the ones in supermarkets. They have regular, you know, pale, waxy, nasty, unripe tomatoes, and they're really, really expensive. And these guys get you know, an unbelievable product, and it's a lot cheaper. Now, Siegel might not know it, but by buying local produce, he's playing a role in protecting the nation's food supply. 
A growing number of food experts, government officials, and consumers say ensuring the safety of our food supply is less an issue for the Department of Homeland Security and more about growing food closer to home. Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman reports. U.S. health officials say we have the safest food system in the world. We consume vast amounts of food with no problem at all. Still, each year, nearly 80 million people in the United States suffer from a foodborne illness. 300,000 are hospitalized and 5,000 die from contaminated food. You're right. The statistics indicate that we've got work to do. Dr. David Atchison is chief medical officer of the FDA's Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition. If you turn the clock back a number of years, it was even worse. We're not there yet. We've got more work to do, but it's getting safer and safer all the time. But it could get worse again, much worse. A few years ago, the Pentagon conducted a classified war game called Silent Prairie, simulating a bioterrorist attack with the virus that causes hoof and mouth disease. Within days, the disease had spread like wildfire. 20 million imaginary cattle had to be destroyed. Brian Hallwell is a senior researcher at Worldwatch and author of the book Eat Here. And when they concluded this war game, they realized that the very aspects of our food system which make us the envy of the world are actually the same characteristics that that make us most vulnerable. And they were very frightened and surprised by their conclusions. American agriculture is often envied for its economies of scale, the huge farms and centralized food production and distribution facilities that make our food so inexpensive. But according to Hallweil, those are the weakest links in the American food chain. He says the system puts all of our eggs in one big basket. He cites a study showing that while the typical U.S. supermarket has about 40,000 products on the shelf, nearly half are produced by just 10 companies, and just three companies produce the majority of the nation's meat. That is one of the dilemmas of large-scale farming, and we've seen this in prior years with ground beef, for example. Again, Dr. David Atchison of the FDA. Some of the large recalls of contaminated ground beef have been because a small amount of contaminated product is then mixed with a large amount of uncontaminated product, thereby resulting in a lot of contaminated product. The same concept is potentially true of, say, some of the bagged leafy greens that we've had experience of recently. 75% of the nation's supply of lettuce is grown in California. And while Dr. Atchison doesn't think that's a problem, Brian Hallweil believes it is because a product like lettuce can often travel thousands of miles from field to fork between the Central Valley of California and the market that that lettuce ends up in, there are many opportunities along that chain for something to go wrong. For example, says Hallweil, a truck's refrigeration can break down, allowing bacteria to multiply on the produce. What's going to make us less vulnerable to these sorts of outbreaks is depending more on smaller, more diversified farms uh, in our area. Now, your small local farm isn't immune to some food safety problem, but any problem that does arise is less likely to spread to affect millions of people in dozens of states, as we found recently with this scary spinach episode. On this point, Dr. David Atchison of the FDA agrees. If you know exactly where something's been grown and how it's been grown, those can be critical issues in ensuring its safety. So it's likely to enhance your safety if you consume that product. But with less than 2% of Americans involved in farming these days, the odds of knowing a farmer, especially if you live in a city, are pretty slim. But you can meet them at your local farmer's market. It's where I met Chris Hartner, farm manager for Full Bloom Farm in western Massachusetts. There they grow 150 acres of organic produce, 
with a watchful eye on the bottom line. In terms of like uh, distribution costs, we don't use that much diesel fuel to get our product to the markets. So it's uh, a lot more regional. You don't have to drive it two, 3,000 miles in a refrigerated truck. <laughs> it's a lot of fuel. To, uh, that adds into the whole cost. The demand for regionally grown organic food is soaring, sales growing at four times the rate of non-organic food. That's caught the attention of Costco and Walmart, which are introducing more and more organic products on their shelves. And Cisco, the largest food distributor in North America, is also getting into the local produce business with a program it calls Buy Local, Sell Fresh. Craig Watson, Cisco Vice President for Quality Assurance and Agricultural Sustainability, says as demand for locally grown produce grows, Cisco is working with more and more small-scale farmers. It has projects in Minnesota, New Mexico, and Alabama. We do have to help them bring their products to market to complete the supply chain because sometimes without making that effort, the product wouldn't get to market, or at least it wouldn't get to market on a Cisco truck. Locally grown produce. It's sort of back to the future, to the way agriculture used to be done just a few decades ago. For Living on Earth, I'm Bruce Gellerman. Coming up, the environment plays a big role in a big sky election. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. We're following environmental issues in this year's critical election, and this week that takes us to Montana. Republican Senator Conrad Burns has represented Montana for 18 years. Now polls show Burns could very well lose his seat to Democratic challenger John Tester, an organic farmer and president of the Montana State Senate. Producer Guy Hand tells us the way Montanans relate to the land is reshaping the political landscape in Big Sky Country. U.S. Senator Conrad Burns has brought over $2 billion in federal funds home to Montana during his three terms in office. He's helped fund scientific research, high-tech jobs, and environmental restoration. He's also brought controversy. Disgraced lobbyist Jack Abramoff gave Burns more campaign contributions than he gave any other lawmaker in Congress, and the League of Conservation Voters has dubbed him one of their dirty dozen for a voting record they say favors the gas and oil industry. A TV ad paid for by the Public Campaign Action Fund. Things have been going great for us here at Big Oil. I love that town. And I love your Senator Conrad Burns, too, because Conrad voted for our energy bill, $3.8 billion in tax breaks and subsidies for us. We like having a senator we can count on. Burns defends his vote on the energy bill, saying energy independence is vital for national security. That's why he's in favor of alternative fuels and drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Still, he's seven points behind in the polls. So where are we? We are on what used to be the main entrance to the Capitol. You only have to walk up the steps of the state Capitol here in Helena to see how closely nature and politics are entwined in Montana. And uh, looks out across the Helena Valley towards the uh, sleeping giant that you can see. Political writer George Oshensky points to open country that on this clear October day seems only an arm's length away. Even here at the Capitol, we're dwarfed by the landscape that surrounds us. This is the path of the Missouri. From here, the Missouri goes downstream. Montana is a large state with a small population. 
There are no big cities, and many of its citizens live well outside even its smallest towns. Nature is in your face. But big sky country, with its wealth of resources, attracts big industry. And the effects of those industries are stamped into both hard rock and memory. Dave Peterson remembers, as a child, the first time he laid eyes on the Anaconda Mining Company's Berkeley Pit, a vast open copper mine in Butte. The pit was enormous and barren. It was industry on a scale that Montanans like Peterson had never seen before, and it became part of their lives. As I grew older, the pit grew larger, and each year, or however often we drove across there and looked at it, the scar grew worse. One of the most massive Superfund sites in America, the Berkeley Pit is a mile wide and deep enough to hide the Empire State Building. It reminds Montanans of the influence Anaconda and other companies once had over the state. Again, George Oshensky. Uh, it was referred to as uh, Montana wearing the copper collar. Uh, the Copper Kings ran this state. They owned the newspapers. They bought the legislature. They threw bags of money through the transoms of the legislators' rooms at night. And the people of Montana basically revolted against that in 1972. When they rewrote their constitution, in part to clearly spell out the right to a clean and healthful environment. In the 70s, Montanans also passed some of the strongest state environmental laws in the nation. As the economy soured in the 80s and 90s, they rolled back many of those laws. But Teresa Caveney, director of the Montana League of Conservation Voters, says after two decades of placing jobs above other concerns, Montanans are again emphasizing the environment. 1998, voters passed a measure to ban new cyanide leach mines. In 2000, they passed a measure to ban canned hunts and game farms. Um, and then in 2004, despite incredible odds, $4 million spent to try to repeal the ban on new cyanide leach mines. Voters said, no way, no how, and 58% said, we want that ban. In 2004, Democratic Governor Brian Schweitzer replaced the unpopular pro-industry Republican Judy Martz. And now voters may soon remove their seasoned U.S. Senator. Hi, Dorothy. Uh, my name is Anna. And I'm really? Volunteers for the Montana League of Conservation Voters have gathered on this rainy Saturday morning in Billings to call voters, probe their opinions on environmental issues, and encourage them to vote for candidates like John Tester, Conrad Burns' Democratic challenger, Teresa Caveney. John Tester's a farmer from Big Sandy. He's made his livelihood with his family on an organic farm. And he has done that for 20 years. He's not a Johnny-come-lately to um, organic farming. As a state senator, Tester pushed a bill that mandates Montana move toward renewable and alternative energy sources. If elected to the U.S. Senate, he promises to create a national renewable energy standard, providing incentives for wind, biofuels, and alternative energy. Tester scores high in the league's political rating system. His lifetime average with Montana conservation voters is 75%, compared to Conrad Burns' lifetime average with the League of Conservation Voters of 4%. Senator Burns says Tester's environmental stance is too extreme for Montana. One of his ads makes that clear. Tester is backed by radicals that want to stop logging and tear down dams. And Tester votes 92% with radicals who would cripple energy production in Montana. That's who supports John Tester. Yet, the most enthusiastic audience response at one recent debate in Bozeman seems to come with a question about global warming. 
Senator Burns, global climate change. We've been warming since the ice age. Since the ice age, we've been warming. Please. And, uh, and, and, and that continues. That's a, that's a, that's a pretty well-known fact. John Tester. The Earth is warm since the ice age is correct, but it's warming much more rapidly now than it ever has in our history. And, and please don't. Please don't. But Senator Burns does find support among some conservation voters. You've got Walling Reef right there, and then you've got Old Man of the Hills next to it. Rancher Carl Rappel lives along the Rocky Mountain front. It's a stunningly beautiful place, where, as he puts it, the prairie crashes right into the mountains. I mean, this is the only place left where every species of wildlife is still here that was here when Lewis and Clark came through. That says something in itself right there. Rappold, his well-worn cowboy hat shading a walrus mustache, points to the massive rock walls erupting along the western edge of his land. He's a lifelong Republican who's been fighting against gas and oil development on the front for decades. And that's exactly why he's voting for Conrad Burns. Senator Burns has been very helpful. Um to what we've been trying to do up here on the Rocky Mountain front. He has introduced legislation that's on the appropriations bill that will permanently retire these oil and gas leases on the front. Senator Burns wants to reduce oil and gas drilling here by buying back drilling rights from the companies that hold them. Rappold says he'll definitely vote for Burns, but locals like Roy Jacobs aren't so sure. What I'm doing is is mounting a mule deer a taxidermist in Shoto, a small town on the Rocky Mountain front, Jacobs is surrounded by mounted deer and elk. He grew up Republican, likes Burns and his plan to limit gas and oil drilling in this corner of Montana, but... Probably right now I'm swinging a little bit more to the Democratic side. I think they're way more responsible. I think they're the true conservatives. They're the Teddy Roosevelt conservatives right now. I think the Democrats are. A recent Rasmussen's Reports poll says that 16% of GOP voters are poised to desert Burns for Tester. Roy Jacobs isn't ready to say whether he's one of them. So Senator Burns has done some good things for conservation. Are you going to vote for him? I just did not answer that question. Of course, it's impossible to say how big a role the environment will play in the upcoming elections. Montanans also have sons and daughters in Iraq, worry about paychecks, hospital bills, and education. But they say they've got a special connection to this land. When asked why, the response is often a shrug and a silent nod to the open horizon, as if to say the answer is obvious. On Montana's Rocky Mountain Front, I'm Guy Hand. For living on Earth. So, who were who you going to vote for? I, I forgot now. I still don't know. <laughs> undecided at the time. I'm undecided till I go to the booth. <laughs> I can't even answer that myself. Congressional and state offices aren't the only things at stake this November. Voters in Arizona, California, Idaho, and Washington state will also decide ballot initiatives that could profoundly affect regulation of private property. Supporters say the new laws would protect property owners from government action that could take away or limit the use of land. They want to make government pay if a new regulation reduces property value. In legal jargon, that's called takings. Others take aim at government's use of eminent domain. That's taking private property for public use. Here's part of an ad from supporters of the item on California's ballot. It's called Proposition 90. After 50 years in our home, the government tried to take it away from us. They call it eminent domain. Imagine 
our government taking our homes and giving it to a developer. Opponents say the new laws could bankrupt governments, cripple environmental protections, and bring more sprawling development. Here's an ad they're running in California. But it's opposed by police, firefighters, environmentalists, business, labor, and taxpayers. More than 200 groups throughout California. Join them and vote no on 90. It's a taxpayer trap. We've asked an expert in constitutional and natural resource law to help us make some sense of this heated and often confusing debate. Jim Huffman is former dean of the Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland, Oregon. Professor Huffman, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Professor Huffman, would these initiatives affect the ability of a state or local government to to regulate to protect the environment? Absolutely. They will have limiting effects on all kinds of regulation if that regulation impacts on property. And how does that work? What's the, the mechanism at play here? Well, for example, if you had a law that was designed to protect endangered species, and uh, part of that regulation, the Im- impact was that private property owners could not uh, do certain things on their property that might impact on the on the endangered species. Uh, these measures presumably would require the government to pay for that diminished value that resulted from that regulation. To make sure I understand this, um, so a state or local government would essentially be looking at a, a pretty high price tag in order to enforce the laws that are that are on the books. That's right, uh, although it's there's a wide array of estimates uh, that are made as to what it would cost. Here in Oregon, we have such a measure, a compensation takings measure. Uh, so far, it doesn't appear that that measure is uh, having as widespread an impact as it was anticipated. I think there's been about 3,000 claims filed. And the reality of it is, under the Oregon measure, that the government's not paying anything because they have the alternative of waiving the regulation. That is not true in all of these pending measures. Some of them don't give the government the option of waiving the regulation, which means they they would have to come up with the money to pay for the diminished property value. And that could be very significant. Apparently, as I understand it, part of the appeal of these uh, initiatives for those signing the petitions and presumably for those who might vote for them is uh, because of the interest in a, in a recent Supreme Court case, pretty high-profile case from Connecticut that had to do with eminent domain. What role is that playing in these uh, ballot initiative battles out west? Well, I think that that case, it was called Kilo against New London, Connecticut. I think it is has been a real stimulus for a focus on property rights. And the Kelo case was about the use of eminent domain, and that is what's gotten the juices flowing politically. And it has, the in these all of these states, they have then piggybacked with that the compensation measure, which I think is much more significant, much more aggressive. And so I think it has muddied the waters. Uh, and although they're both about property rights, they're, they're very different. Uh, concerns with very different support groups, I think. What I hear from the opponents to these initiatives is they see something a little more sinister at play in the scenarios that you're describing here. They see a a kind of a larger uh, effort to pretty much dismantle the regulatory mechanism. Do you see something like that at play here? Well, I think that's part of what's at play. Uh, The interest groups supporting this, I think, are basically anti-regulation interest groups. But I think what has gotten this thing off the ground and made it a uh, cause that's been picked up 
all across the country is the concern about individual property owners. I think it, those facts in the Kelo case are what really got this ball rolling. And so I don't think, I think it's a mistake to, uh, to conclude that this is all about a sort of a national uh, top-down conspiracy to, uh, to limit regulation. It's partly that. But I don't think we would be in the position we're in with these measures having a fair probability of passing if there weren't this grassroots concern among individual property owners that, but for the grace of God, there go I into this regulatory pit and lose the value in my property. If these ballot initiatives do have some success come November, do you think we're going to see more of these? Is this uh, the start of a, of a trend here? I think so. I think this, you know, I've watched the property rights movement for 25, 30 years, and I, I would say they're on a high right now, and I think they'll, they won't stop with this. Well, thanks for speaking with us today, Professor Huffman. Uh, Professor Huffman is former dean of Lewis and Clark Law School and an expert in constitutional law and natural resource law. Thanks again. You're very welcome. It's time to hear from you, our listeners. Now, several people were unhappy with our story about McDonald's giving away toy Hummers in its Happy Meals. Steve O'Donnell hears us on WNYC New York. He says we should have really grilled the McDonald's spokesperson. And Mr. O'Donnell wants to know how much General Motors paid McDonald's and where the company would draw the line in marketing to children. What's next, he asks, the Marlboro Happy Meal? But WMFE listener Bill Potter of Orlando, Florida, thinks the anti-Hummer argument is a non-starter. It's a toy they're giving away. I don't know that you can tell the difference between a toy Hummer with a gas engine, a diesel engine, or a hybrid. It's a toy for children. KQED listener Ann Krober in California was inspired by our story about a Colorado brewery that chose renewable energy, even though it costs a little more. She called it a lovely interlude from the usual gloom and doom. But Mike Jacobs in Concord, Massachusetts, says that story sounds a little out of date. Jacobs is with the American Wind Energy Association. He hears us on WBUR. He says wind is now the cheap energy choice for most of Colorado and saves money for some companies. Well, whether you think our stories are on the money or off the mark, let us know about it. You can call the listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Our email address is comments at loe.org. Once again, comments at loe.org. Just ahead, row, row, row your pumpkin? Hmm. But first, this note on emerging science from Jen Percy. Somewhere in the Illinois countryside, a killer is on the loose. They say he has 20-20 vision, uses GPS navigation, and kills his victims with a single deadly blow. But don't worry, he's just a weed killer. Agricultural engineers at the University of Illinois built a search-and-destroy robot designed to roam farm fields and hunt down problematic weeds. The robot is two feet tall, is powered by solar panels, and can travel up to three miles an hour. It's equipped with a speedy computer, an 80-gigabyte hard drive, and even has a wireless internet connection. The computer helps identify a plant's features, letting the robot know what is and isn't a weed. When it finds a weed, it snips it with its robotic arm and dabs a bit of herbicide on the cut stem. 
Currently, herbicide is applied either from airplanes or through irrigation systems. Engineers hope replacing this equipment with lots of tiny solar-paneled robots will reduce the use of harmful chemicals and make the farm more energy efficient. But researchers stress that the robot is still a prototype and is quite costly. So don't expect your fields to be getting greener anytime soon. That's this week's Note on Emerging Science. I'm Jennifer Percy. If you enjoy listening to Living on Earth, chances are you have some pretty good ideas about things people should hear about the environment. Good news, bad news, or just plain interesting. If you think it would make a worthwhile story for the radio, please get in touch. You can zap us an email at comments at LOE.org or call the Living on Earth listener line at 800-218-9988 or write 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. It's Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And it's time you and I had a little talk about the birds and the bees. Uh, No, no, sorry. Sorry. Stop. Stop. Not, Not that kind of birds and bees talk. This kind. Yeah, that's that's right. Real bees, real birds and the possibility that they are in real trouble. And that could be trouble for us, too. Some 80% of the world's crops need birds, bees, bats, and other animals for pollination. And there are indications that some important pollinator species are in decline. A group of concerned scientists and agriculture officials formed the North American Pollinator Protection Campaign. They asked the National Academy of Sciences to look into pollinator problems. University of Illinois biology professor Gene Robinson took part in the National Academy study, and he's with us now to talk about it. Dr. Robinson, welcome to Living on Earth. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. What did the National Academy's report tell us about pollinators? The report said that there is clear evidence for decline in some pollinator species, um, But in other cases, for other species, there's just not enough information available to make that determination. And is this a serious decline? I mean, do we need to be pretty worried here or what? Well, it's it's uh, quite a large decline. Uh, probably about 30% uh, of the population has declined over the last 20 or so years. What's causing the decline, or do we know? Well, the causes vary for the different species. In the case of the honeybee, the evidence clearly indicates that the main culprit is a parasitic mite, an invasive species introduced to North America some 20-some years ago. Um, That seems to be the most serious cause of the decline of the honeybees. And what about uh, pesticides? Pesticides are considered to be a contributing factor. The evidence is not as as clear-cut, but there certainly is some evidence that uh, would point in that direction. What you have always is uh, a variety of factors that work to weaken populations, to make them less resilient, so that when other factors come into play, they can cause more serious problems. What's potentially at risk if we uh, begin to lose uh, significant numbers of, of pollinators? Um, The effects of loss of pollinators can be severe. In agriculture, there can be a disruption of our our food availability. Now, um, just to be clear, pollinators uh, do not pollinate the basic grain crops, which are the staple of the world's diet. The the wind takes care of that, right? 
Exactly. But uh, pollinators do pollinate really important uh, food crops, nuts, fruits, berries, vegetables, seed crops, crops that add a great deal of diversity to our diet, a great deal of vitamins, nutrients that really enrich our diet. Was there a, a sort of a worst-case scenario just, just looking at the economic impact of, of what the honeybees uh, provide for us? Well, honeybees are, are estimated to provide between 10 to $20 billion uh, worth of, of food in the United States alone per year uh, due to their pollination activities. Wow. What then does the Academy's report recommend we, we should do about this? Well, we made several recommendations. First of all, we called for more research. Uh, we note that uh, the timing is fortuitous. The publication of the honeybee genome is just coming out, and uh, the genome of the honeybee has been sequenced, which um, really is going to usher in a new era of honeybee research, affording a lot of opportunities for uh, genome-assisted research that can lead to improved strains of bees. So in addition to the, these things specific to honeybees, there, there are things that you're encouraging uh, average people to, to do to get involved, right? Most pollinators are small, little creatures. Uh, and so it's possible for the average homeowner to uh, be part of a campaign to uh, improve the status of pollinators. All one needs to do is plant some flowering plants, um, create some habitat for nesting uh, individuals, uh, bees, so that they can make their nests in these areas. And so these are things that small uh, homeowners and landowners can, can do on their own. It, it just strikes me over and over over the course of this conversation how much we take for granted what these, these little critters do for us. And I don't know who, who coined the phrase, but the, the little things that run the world, they, they really are, aren't they? Yes, indeed. That phrase was coined by Professor Edward Wilson, who is an ant biologist, and um, it holds perfectly for the pollinators. So it greatly behooves us to pay attention and, and treat them right, I guess. I think so. Well, Dr. Gene Robinson is a biology professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and also took part in the National Academy of Sciences study of pollinators. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Robinson. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. The U.S. Postal Service hopes to raise awareness about pollinating species with a new set of pollinator stamps. You can get a sneak peek at them and read all about the birds and bees by buzzing on over to our website. It's LOE.org. Let me tell you about the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the moon up above and a thing Now we turn from little bugs to big bugs. Really big. Bugs with a two-foot wingspan. Some 300 million years ago, some insects were like that. Gigantic. And that we know from the fossil record. What we did not know is why those prehistoric bugs got so big and why today's bugs, fortunately, do not. Well, researchers from Arizona State and Midwestern universities and the Argonne National Laboratory now think they know why. Arizona State Biology Professor John Harrison was the lead investigator. Welcome, Dr. Harrison. Uh, greetings, Jeff. Well, uh, tell me, what, uh, what did you learn about uh, why insects in prehistoric periods got so big? Well, the link back to prehistoric time comes from work by Bob Berner and others that showed that in the late Paleozoic, atmospheric oxygen was much higher than today, somewhere in the range of 30% oxygen. So what we think, the, the current working model is that uh, you can get a larger insect with smaller trachea if the oxygen's high. 
tell me more about uh, some of the basics of uh, how insects breathe and, and why that's important to this uh, area of study here. Yeah, so insects have a series of little holes along their, their body called spiracles. And then there are tubes, tiny tubes that branch throughout their body. And the oxygen actually comes down as a gas right down to each tissue. So the, the, in ancient times, they, we had a 35% uh, oxygen in the atmosphere? Somewhere in that range. And what is it today? 21%. Aha. So uh, more oxygen in the atmosphere means the trachea didn't have to be as big, right? Exactly. Um, well, how big can a bug get then? Well, we certainly know from the fossil record that they could get up to 10 times bigger than they are today, which, I mean, a cockroach the size of your thigh would impress most people and would be considered maybe not quite like them, but a pretty scary sight. So, and this works the other way around. Lower oxygen for at least some of these species that you studied yielded uh, smaller insects. Yeah, and that's really pretty dramatic. And and the vast majority of insects we've studied do that. And that's really interesting because actually after the 30, 35% pulse in oxygen, it is believed to have dropped down to about 10%. And that corresponded with a lot of uh, high rates of extinction. And our uh, atmospheric concentration of oxygen has gone down a lot since uh, 300 million years ago. Is it expected to continue to decline in the future? Mm. We wish we knew. I mean, it's been constant for quite a while. So the balance between photosynthesis and respiration at the planetary level is, has been matched for a long time. And I, I think it's very interesting to look back and realize that there were periods of time where that was not the case. Um, clearly, we're in the realm of the hypothetical here. But uh, if we had really big bugs, would there be big implications for the ecosystem? Yeah, that's a really fascinating question. I mean, the of course they are so such great competitors that one I mean it's hard to believe they wouldn't have a tremendous effect uh, on the ecosystem if they if they did get much larger. On the other hand, back when there were giant insects, there weren't birds and mammals around to eat them. So, it's not really clear who would come out on top. I'd like to hope it would be us. Well, this is a really kind of a, a fascinating topic, and I thank you very much for taking time to uh, to explain a little bit of it uh, for us. Dr. John Harrison is a professor at Arizona State University. Dr. Harrison, thanks very much. Thank you. Pumpkins are the most popular gourd of this festive fall season. You can carve them, roast the seeds, make bread and pie. But not all pumpkins are created equal. This year, a farmer in Rhode Island set the record for the heaviest pumpkin in the world. It weighed in at 1,502 pounds. But after winning a way-off, what do you do with a giant pumpkin but turn it into a boat? Living on Earth's Ashley Ahern went to the first annual Massachusetts Pumpkin Paddle in Rutland, and she brought back this story. It's a misty fall morning on Long Pond, and at the edge of the town parking lot, over by the boat ramp, people are unloading a few pickup trucks. Three men stand around sipping coffee. They look like they might be getting ready to go for an early morning boat ride. And I guess you could say they are, if by boat you mean 
pumpkin. That's my, that's my baby right there. <laughs> In the back of Joe Post's pickup sits a bulbous globule of gourd that would make a Hubbard squash quake on its vine. That's the one you want to make a boat out of right there. 600 pounds is what you can handle. <laughs> Joe's talking about his Atlantic giant pumpkin. In the eastern part of this country, folks grow some of the biggest pumpkins in the world and hold competitions at state and county fairs. Craig Fitzgerald founded the Massachusetts Pumpkin Paddle. He felt there had to be life after the county fair for Pegasus, his 400-pound prize-winning pumpkin. Once the layoffs are over, we realized that we would just it would go into the compost pile. There's not much else to do with them. We decided we would paddle them, see how it goes. What are the qualities you would look for in a pumpkin that's going to make a good boat? If it were more um, elongated, more canoe-shaped, would be ideal. Uh, but anything between 500 and 800 pounds is an ideal weight. But mostly the shape is the most important thing. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, every, every one is different. I had, I had one that looked like a wagon wheel uh, this year. That was really strange looking. But that's, a lot of them get flat. They get ugly looking when they start getting big. <laughs> and a beauty pageant. But it is, it's all a way off. That's what it is now. Yeah. Beauty pageant or not, on this day, only the mightiest of pumpkins will take to the water. A crowd begins to gather on the shore. In the water float four giant pumpkins. They've hollowed out their innards to make seats for the paddlers. They look like round, unwieldy kayaks. The worst kayaks you could ever paddle. I found Tony Shirley. He's one of the day's competitors, and asked him how he prepared for the race. You have to be serious about it. been trying a diff- bunch of different things, found the biggest canoe I could get, and I got a good paddle, and then I was practicing uh, standing up in the canoe paddling for balance purposes. I don't know. I was thinking about getting something like a bathtub, and maybe that would work, but I uh, couldn't really find any. Tony's young and fit. It's his first pumpkin paddle, and he takes the race very seriously. I mean, this is the Massachusetts pumpkin paddle. So I will be the state champ after this, hopefully. And then uh, maybe next year, if I win two in a row, I'll be undefeated. And then my wife will make up the orange robe, and I'll come out with, instead of boxing gloves, I'll have pumpkins. Don't get me wrong, I'm here for the fun, but I'm in it to win it. Well, good afternoon again, everybody, and thank you for coming out to the first annual Massachusetts Pumpkin Paddle. What a great crowd, what a great afternoon. There are about 400 people now crowding the shore. The race is about to begin. <laughs> the competitors, Craig Fitzgerald, the quiet and humble founder of the race. Joe Post in his camouflage hip waiter wetsuit. Young Tony Shirley, raring to go after weeks of training. And Dan Bushnell, a local farmer who arrives late on the scene. I'm invited to sit in the official race committee boat, which is thankfully not a pumpkin, but it is a front row seat for the action. This race is getting off to a slow start. Pumpkin paddlers bob up and down, and they're barely staying on course as they round the first buoy. But things get interesting as the paddlers round the second buoy and start to sprint for the finish line. Just as Dan comes from behind to take the lead, he loses one of his competitors to the whim of a tippy gourd. Well, Tony's out of the race, but Dan's about 10 yards from the finish line. 
Craig's hot on Dan's heels, but Joe is a distant third. Suddenly, Joe and his pumpkin, Gordzilla, start to teeter and take on water. Joe's in the water laughing as Dan crosses the finish line. After the awards ceremony, I catch up with the sopping wet Tony. He's already getting pumped for next year's competition. My neighbor's going to let me grow a pumpkin in his backyard, so I'm scored on that. Maybe I'll grow too, carve one out to practice in that. It's hard to say. It's hard to prepare for something like this. There's always next year. There is indeed always next year. For Living on Earth, I'm Ashley Ahern in Rutland, Massachusetts. Next week on Living on Earth, California Congressman Richard Pombo controls the fate of some of the most important national environmental legislation. Well, now he's in an election fight to keep his seat. Environmental groups hope to defeat Pombo and make way for his opponent, a wind power engineer. What's unique about this race is the focal point on the environment and energy. Both candidates are very well versed in energy policy. They know where they want to go and they have laid out pretty solid policies. Is Congressman Pombo an endangered species? Next week on Living on Earth. Hello, Wellfleet. Welcome to the finals of the Shuckoff competition. Absolutely shocking. We leave you this week at another competition. We'll be shucking 24 oysters each on a tray. They'll sort them, they'll eyeball them, and then they'll go at them. Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman went to a festival in Wellfleet, Massachusetts that celebrates the food that made the place famous, oysters. Three, two, one, go! Live shucking in Wellfleet, going shell for shell. This is going to be close coming down the wire. Here we got some good times going. He's done any cut. Excellent time. Good looking tram oysters. They call them tuna. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Eileen Bolinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, and Emily Taylor, with help from Bobby Bascom and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Ian Gray and Jennifer Percy. Dennis Foley is our technical director. Our executive producer is Steve Kerwood. Allison Lurish Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Jeff Young. Thanks for listening. Andy, how'd you feel out there today? I feel like an animal. There he is. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Educational Foundation of America, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels. 
Serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. PRI Public Radio International.